Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Good morning, church. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Today, we're going to talk about a hard topic of sexism. When my husband came home and said that the preaching team was embarking upon this journey of reconciliation and corporate sin, and that they had wanted me to preach on this topic, my first response was, what? But instead, I said what we say, can I pray about it? Um, We had a big conversation about this, about whether it was good and right for the church, how I had never wanted my teaching in this church to be about my gender. I stand before you now not with flags of feminism, but as a daughter of God in Christ. Um, I really take this topic very seriously because I know people have been hurt and people continue to hurt people. Um, in regards to sexist sin. And I also do so in submission to my husband, first and foremost. He has been so gracious to me. And as Paul reminds women to go home and ask questions, I went home and asked a lot of questions. I've spent time reading, listening to sermons, reading books, listening to podcasts, etc., in preparation today. And I hope that it will build you up, and I hope that it will start conversations of healing amongst our church. So would you pray for me, with me? Heavenly Father, we come knowing that you say who we are. Holy Spirit, would you come now and open our hearts and our minds so that we would be blessed by your word, Jesus. Jesus, we sit at the well. We wait for you to come. And your word says that if we but ask for living water, you will give it to us. Jesus, we're tired of water that only temporarily quenches our needs. We want living water that only you can provide. We want living water so that we truly can live as sons and daughters of a heavenly father who loves us so much so that we can live in worship and reflection of who we are in you. Would you help us, Lord? All right, so I brought some props with me today. All right. So I have some glasses and some pink ones, some ones that reflect everything, and some blue ones. And I also have some clear ones. Now, glasses can be a symbol for beliefs because beliefs frame how we view the world. We can either see the world through clean and clear lenses that provide clarity, or we can view the world through distorted beliefs that cause our lenses and how we see people and see the world to be distorted. If you think about it, sexism is a distorted belief. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. As Christians, we also have to look in the mirror. 
brought a mirror with me. Mirrors help us to see what we look like, right? But they can also help us to see what glasses we may be wearing. As Christians, we look in the mirror, we examine our thoughts, we examine our beliefs by first looking at what God's word says. We do this in prayer. We do this in fellowship, sharing with one another, but listening to godly men and women in mentorship. Then we also have to look at the fruit or the result of our actions, our words, and our thoughts. Is it worshipful to who God is? Is it image-bearing, showing who God is to the world? Is it building up God's church? Is it proclaiming the gospel and being a good witness? So sexism can be defined as prejudice, stereotyping, or discrimination on the basis of sex. At the heart of sexism is a belief that frames men or women as inferior based upon their gender. Sexism may also view somebody as inferior when they don't meet societally defined gender stereotypes. Sexism fails to see men and women as co-image bearers. As co-image bearers, we are one, co-equal, two, interdependent, but three, distinct and not interchangeable. Sexism, therefore, is a sin because it is against who God created us to be as men and women. Sexist sin can occur on the corporate level when a community systematizes practices that views one gender as superior and the other as inferior, oppressing that gender so that they don't participate in the community. It can also occur on a personal level, when a person makes derogatory remarks or acts or even thinks derogatory thoughts about somebody based upon their gender or about the gender as a whole. It can also be when they think of somebody not meeting certain criteria of a gender stereotype. Sexist sin can be acts and thoughts of commission, initiating or participating in such sexist remarks or acts. It can be omission, ignoring such practices or dismissing them as normal or funny. Next time you watch a movie, look at a cartoon, watch a game show. Think about which of these lenses you're viewing them through. Next time you have a conversation with the guys, a conversation with the ladies. Think about the glasses you're wearing. Next time you talk about your spouse in front of somebody else, when he, they, he or she is not there, think about what glasses you're wearing. You could be committing a sin or, or doing a sin of omission where you ignore what's being said. You see, sexist sin not only results in breaking our relationships with each other, it depredates our God-ordained, and Christ-reclaimed identity as men and women. This affront to our God-given identity is why sexist sin hurts so much, and it's an atrocity to God. It's not only humiliating, it is dehumanizing. So what's our hope? How can we return to wholeness or shalom with God and with one another? How can our broken identities and broken relationships be restored? We must first restore our vision of who God made us to be as co-image bearers who are co-equal, interdependent, 
but not interchangeable. We must confront and look in the mirror to see our distorted views that promote sexism. And finally, we must seek gender reconciliation following Jesus' example. In John 4, we will look at Jesus' interaction with somebody who has experienced sexist sin and has also participated in sexual sin. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 1. We're going to look at verses 26 and 28 and see what our biblical basis is for gender identity. So God said, let us make mankind in our own image and in our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this passage in Genesis is beautiful poetry that describes important truths about who we are as men and women in relationship to God. First, it is God who creates us. God alone has the authority to author our identity and our purpose. God has made us, man and woman, in his image. We have equal opportunities to reflect his attributes. God has blessed us. We are precious and valuable to him. But there is also this distinction. Two categories are described, both man and woman. Together, they are to be fruitful and to have dominion and care over God's creation. This unity and equality that we get from following in God's purposes is also echoed in Galatians 3, 27, 29, where Paul describes who we are united in Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, and there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs of the promise. You see, in Christ, we are no longer under the law of circumcision, a sign of the covenant for men only. Men and women, we are united with Christ in baptism, a sign of the covenant for all God's people, both male and female. That's beautiful. But you see, we are also inheritors of a promise of eternal life in Christ. And with that promise comes the gifts of the Holy Spirit to build up his church and proclaim his name. The list of spiritual gifts given in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are not gender specific. We are all to use spiritual gifts for the edification of the church and proclamation of the gospel. However, with a big however, while men and women are co-equal and interdependent, we are distinct and not interchangeable. The creation story in Genesis 2, as well as New Testament passages such as Ephesians 5, support the roles of headship for men and suitable helpership, if there is a word, for women. In this relationship, men and women can be a living parable of Christ and his church. And that is a high and holy calling and beautiful. 
So what does biblical headship mean in a nutshell? In summary, men have the responsibility to lead by initiation and setting precedent. They are to initiate and set precedent for obedience to God's will and word and discipleship and formation of God's people. The justification for this male headship is based on the creation story, not the fall. Adam was created and then Eve. This is not a statement of worth, but of role and responsibility for men. God commissions Adam to initiate fruitful work before Eve is created. He is to tend the garden and have dominion over God's creation, naming the animals that God brings to him. However, God looks on Adam and says, it is not good after he has called all of creation good. This is the first time we hear he is alone and that is not good. So God creates a suitable helper for him to complement him in his work. But you see, God also gives Adam spiritual headship. God's command to not eat of the tree of knowledge goes directly to Adam before Eve is created. However, when the serpent comes tempting, Eve seems to know something about what God said. So therefore, we can infer that Adam had a responsibility to give God's command in spiritual leadership to his wife and ensure that his household followed it. But men's leadership to initiate and set precedent also is to be accompanied by roles of love, protection, and providing in ways that ensure the formative health and growth of their families. That is physical, emotional, and spiritual. Those families not only occur in the home, but they also occur in the church. These attributes also apply to how men will serve in their community and in their workplace. The drive to initiate and set precedent to provide and to protect must be motivated and tempered by self-sacrificing love and Christ-like character. As stated when you read Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and without blemish. That is a beautiful, self-sacrificing, godly, Christ-like love. And while this passage seems to particularly refer to men, single men, you are not left out of this. Because you can apply this love and protection and leadership for your family and church like this. Wash your family in the church and in your home and in your community with God's word. Cherish them as you would your own body and your own soul. That's Christ-likeness, manway. So what does the biblical womanhood look like as a suitable helper? In summary, women are to have responsibility and lead in helping and nurturing. Women are often gifted with the abilities to see a broad and interconnected view. This is not spaghetti brain, it's actually a gift. We, we can see the interconnections of our families and communities' needs. 
physically, emotionally, and spiritually sometimes in ways that men are not gifted to. This is not a put down, it's just how we're made. This suitable helpership means that women should be asked about their views about the family and church's health and growth. Women should facilitate health and growth of their families and at home and in the church, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. These attributes also apply to how women serve their community and in the workplace, whether that work be primarily at home or at a place of employment. However, this instinctive drive to love, nurture, facilitate, and serve must be motivated and tempered by a posture of respect and submission to God in the ways that he has made men. Submission is not an act of subordination of an inferior to a superior, but it is an act of Christ-like character. Listen to these words from Philippians 2, 6 through 7. For Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Married women can particularly show such co-equal submission and help and nurturing to their husbands, but single women can reflect these attributes as well, working alongside men in ministry and in submission to the ways that God has made men to be heads, leaders, and initiators of his word and purpose. Men are not to force headship, and women are not to submit to ungodly behavior. Both men and women have the unique opportunity to reflect Christ's likeness. Men in self-sacrificing love and headship, and women in co-equal submission. Together, we can demonstrate to the world Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. Together, as married and singles, we can all be co-image bearers of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who at various times both glorify different parts of the Godhead and submit to it. Think about Christ in the garden with his Father. Think about the Father and the Son sending forth the Spirit who is to reflect glory back to Jesus. This is a high and holy calling. It requires us to submit to God. But what happens when we trade this clear and beautiful vision of who we are as co-image bearers, sons and daughters of God for a distorted view. So let's look at some glasses here. So forgive the gender stereotypes. These blue glasses represent a misogynistic sexism. In misogynistic sexism, the headship role is perverted into a belief that sees men as superior and women as inferior. In the highest form of this, women are sequestered to the home and not to participate in important matters of the church, whether that be decision-making or sharing and spreading of the gospel. Men are unilaterally leading. This is a desperate housewife, but the desperate housewife does not at all look like the Proverbs 31 woman. This perverted view may lead men to force women into submission. It may lead to submission physically, sexually, and emotionally. It is wrong. 
It leads to the quenching of the gifts of the Spirit when women have been called to use their gifts to build up Christ's church and proclaim the gospel. An example of this happened to Beth Moore, a well-known teacher of God's word. You can read about it in an article of Christianity Today called Much Ado About Gender Roles, where it has a link to her letter. In this letter, she very hesitantly talks about some of the ways that as a teacher, um, she experienced sexism. She said that she's gone to pastor conferences where a man pastor who she really admired took one look at her and he says, well, you're much prettier than that other female pastor. She has sat in rooms with other male pastors where they didn't even make eye contact with her. This is hurtful and wrong. It's a sexist sin. From the pulpit, men pastors have said about her that she could not possibly be following God's call on her life to preach and teach and proclaim the gospel, which she intended to do for women primarily, and it's just expanded to include men as well. She said that that couldn't be, that this male pastor said, that could not be God's call on her because it was not in alignment with scripture and that she should go home and take care of her family. Not that she shouldn't go home and take care of her family, but she should preach and teach if that's what God's called her to do in a way that is submissive to her husband and to male leadership, what she intended to do. So sadly, men may also use masculinist views as a weapon towards other men. So rather than encouraging and mentoring their brothers in Christ to follow and learn how to lead as God's godly men, they use it as a weapon against them, saying that they're not man enough because they don't fit certain, certain gender criteria. Even women borrow these glasses, and when they're forced into submission or abuse, they think that it's just being submissive to say abuse is okay. And so they stay in it, and that's wrong. And if you would like to listen to an example of how this destroyed a church, uh, you can listen to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This is not for children's ears, but it is very humbling and revealing about how such views can destroy a church. All right, let's go on. So these are the pink glasses of feminism. In these glasses, women may see men as inferior, at least wrong, for taking primary headship roles. The headship role of men, ordained by God, becomes obsolete. With this lens, uh, men may be actually considered just uh, driven by their fleshly desires rather than be encouraged as godly men and leaders who love and cherish their family and church. So an example for the kids, I don't know if you've read the book Berenstain Bears or some of their books, I actually hate the way that they portray the dad. So in Too Much Junk Food, for example, dad joins along with the kids eating too much junk food, getting terribly fat and lazy, and mom is the one that calls the shots, shipping them all off to the doctor. And then the kids all comply with mom and go outside and get exercise and learn to eat their veggies, while dad is still sneaking junk food. That is wrong. And I read this book to our kids, and we turn around and say, this is not the man of God you are called to be. You lead your family. You take good care of them. When your wife said something wrong, you listen to her, and you join in that work, and you lead your family. 
This also can happen when women take on roles in the church and they completely ignore men or don't care if they sort of just fade off into the background. This is wrong too. Sometimes, again, men can borrow these glasses and say, well, church is kind of girly anyway, and it's not for me, you know. Or, you know, the women are taking care of it, so, like, that's fine. Or, you know, if I actually stand up and set precedent or initiate, some girl's going to think I'm a chauvinist pig. That is wrong. And so men may also abdicate their roles, and national statistics prove this. One-third of the children that grow up in the United States grow up without their biological father. Don't abdicate your role, men, please. We may also use glasses of omission. We just put shades and be like, you know, that's, that's the other church's problem. That doesn't happen in my church. I can't even see y'all out there, but I know you all right. You know? But if you just put on those passive glasses, you're also saying that sexism is okay. You're saying that it's maybe just funny or for the sports bar, for the locker room, you know, for the girls' club. And when you're driving in your car and you're like, I can't believe that guy over there did such and such and such, when it may be a girl, you don't know. Or you may think that girl did such and such and such when it may be a guy. Like, what is behind those comments? You see, we are all responsible, no matter how we think that the roles of men and women living out in the church should be, we are all responsible for making sure that sexist sin doesn't happen. We are all responsible for caring for people who have been hurt by sexist sin. We are all responsible for ensuring that men and women represent co-image bearing of God as sons and daughters in Christ. So how can we begin this process? Let's look now briefly at John 4. So in John 4, Jesus, a Jewish man, travels to Samaria. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans have hated each other for 900 years by now. The Samaritans primarily worshipped on a mountain, but the Jews said, you have to worship in the temple. The Samaritans and the Jews had different points of scripture. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. But Jesus goes to Samaria, and when he's there, he meets a woman who's at a well. And he starts talking with this woman. This is another cultural faux pas. No Jewish man would ever talk to a Samaritan woman. But Jesus starts the conversation, and he says, would you give me something to drink? And the woman is amazed, recognizing that there should be walls of racism and there should be walls of sexism here. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For in parentheses, Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And if you look at the way the woman responds, maybe inside she's saying, why are you talking to me? Shouldn't you see me through the eyes of racism? Shouldn't you, Jesus, see me through the eyes of sexism? But Jesus replies, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying this to you, you would stop you would be so bold as to ask me for a drink because I have living water. In this statement, Jesus begins to tear down the walls of hostility of racism. He begins to take off the lenses of sexism and he invites her to ask him for living water. This is truly unbelievable. Jesus is asking her 
to see him through clear lenses. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord come down who is offering living water, which is eternal life in him because he takes away the sins of the world, including racism and sexism. Now, this woman has never heard of such living water, so Jesus goes on to explain, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give to him or her will never thirst again. The water that I give becomes a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So the woman says, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, for I have come here to draw water again and again every day. And Jesus proclaims to her in this who he is. He can meet all her needs right now and for eternity. He says to her, don't be satisfied with temporary things that are going to dry out. But Jesus also presses into her to speak against some of her false identities. He says to her, go and call your husband to come here. But the woman truthfully answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right. You have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are living with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, at first glance, we might see this woman just as a woman in sin. But step back and think about this. In this culture, for a woman to be left by five husbands meant that she was left with no property, no means of income, and no say in her community. As a result, she had resulted to a life of adultery. Jesus listens and knows her cultural background. He knows where she's been, but he doesn't leave her there. He could have rejected this woman on the grounds of racism as a Samaritan, on the grounds of sexism as a woman, and then of judgment of her sin. And as the Messiah, he would have been right in doing so. But he doesn't place value on this woman in her sin. He sees her for the child of God she can become. He says to her, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, well, I, I know the Messiah is coming, and he is to be called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus proclaims, I who speak to you, am he. You see, Jesus breaks down the walls of racism. He takes off the lenses of sexism. Jesus sees us for who we really are, created in God's image, male and female. Jesus sees us for who we really are, suffering because of our broken relationships and because of sin. Sin that Jesus put to death by dying on the cross. Jesus sees us for who we are, as men and women who can become sons and daughters of God when we let go of the sin that entangles us and accept him as Messiah who has come to redeem us and give us living water, eternal life in him. So church, will you go to Samaria? Those places that are uncomfortable and may cost you your reputation to offer those in need who have been hurt by sin living water, eternal hope in Christ. Will you see men and women 
as co-image-bearers of God? Will you listen and understand their story? What has brought them to the well where they are now? Where is God already at work in their life? And will you respond with both grace and truth? In Christ, we are free from our sin. In Christ, we can live as unity, in unity as sons and daughters of God. And then will you go and will you rejoice as the disciples did in her whole community when you see the fruits of gender reconciliation? Now, I bought with me a trash can because I want you to think about some of the views maybe that you've had or you continue to have, or maybe you don't know and you need to look in the mirror or ask somebody. But what views do you have that say men are superior to women or that certain men don't meet certainly manhood criteria? Are you willing to throw these lenses away? Women, in what ways have you put down men, told them that they should not lead in setting precedent and initiating in the house and in our church? In what ways have you looked upon women because of their work, whether that be in the home or in the workplace, as inferior because they don't meet certain gender stereotypes? Men, have you abdicated your role as leader fearful that you might be considered a chauvinist pig. Would you throw these away? What about us? Do we know what's going on in the church? And I don't mean just this one. Because when we get to heaven, there's one church, the bride of Christ. Should we throw these ones away too that shade our view and say sexist sin doesn't exist? It's not in our culture. We've done away with that. Women have equal rights. Let's throw this one away too. Would you look at the Bible anew? Would you look at the ways that we're co-image bearers, co-equal, interdependent, distinct and not interchangeable? Would you put these lenses on and see the people in your church and in your family and in your world with the way that Jesus does? Would you go to Samaria? Would you reconcile with those people that have been hurt? Would you offer them grace and truth? And would you look for the fruit? Men and women of City of Refuge, I see you. You are child, children of God. You are sons and daughters. Now go and do likewise. Hallelujah and amen.